0: Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Taylor, and I'll be one of your hosts today. And as always, I'm joined by Tanner. Tanner, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you? Awesome. Doing great. Kind of good to be back on track here, doing it on a Mm -hmm. Sunday morning like we traditionally do when we record the podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess we'll start out today. Let's start out by doing a couple patron shout outs. We've had a, a busy week on the Patreon page. I want to say thank you to Wesley, Heather, Julie, and Rob for signing up. Thank you very much. We greatly appreciate that support. In addition to that, let's uh let's go ahead and move on into those media check-ins. What have you been up to?
1: Ah, uh, my biggest thing uh this week, basically every every Friday is always a big day with Bandcamp uh releases, uh especially, you know, listen to a lot of metal. Friday is a big day for for those releases. A big one I had been waiting for for a while was the newest album from a band called Moonshade. Okay. The albums called As We Set the Skies Ablaze. That was a pre-order I'd been waiting on for a while. I, I feel like I pre-ordered it like a month or two ago when it was first available. So that came out. That's been a good listen. I've probably listened through it 10 or 12 times.
0: Nice. Is it in Portuguese?
1: No, they're from Portugal, but it's it's in English.
0: Okay, not that it really matters, I guess. In metal, like it, it's kind of
1: <laughs> this um the the Lusitanian metal scene is strong. <laughs> I actually got into them via another band I listened to called Soz, um, who are also from Portugal, and nice. they they sing about Maya history and mythology. Okay, Moonshade is a, I guess, a bit more what you'd expect from a melodic death metal band. A lot of similarities to someone like a like a Dark Tranquility, okay, or like. Maybe some mid-career Amon Amarth similarities. Okay. But also some sequences that would be believable coming from Lamb of God or someone okay. like that. There's a lot of diversity in it. There, there's a lot of, on this album, there's a lot of duet style with male and female vocals. That's really cool and really interesting. Um, and it comes out really well. I think my favorite song off the album was one of the singles they released called Artemis. I did add it to our Beyond the Breakers playlist on Spotify.
0: Thank you for saying that. I was I've been meaning to shout that out. If anyone would like to and you have a Spotify account, look up the Beyond the Breakers playlist. We've curated some of our favorite selections and things we're listening to. It's it's pretty long, it's pretty weird, it's pretty eclectic. There's a little bit of everything in there. Give that a follow, give it a listen.
1: It was funny. I was looking at that earlier today and I was thinking how it's it's funny that like we have a lot of stuff that we really like on there, obviously. But I noticed that like we don't put any of our like super, super top tier favorites on there. I know. Like there's no Gaslight Anthem. There's no Lawrence Arms, I don't think. Um, right. Frank Turner.
0: <laughs> yeah. The the things that are truly my favorites.
1: <laughs> those are ours. Those belong to us. <laughs> you can't have those.
0: You have to earn those.
1: <laughs> I guess this makes as much sense here as anywhere else. But another thing I'll throw in here that's media related is for anyone who has ever wanted to be in a book club but just didn't know how to do that. We have a great opportunity for you. One of our uh, Twitter followers, Wade, had the amazing idea to put together a uh, a reading group for Stephen Erickson's Malazan Book of the Fallen. If you're not familiar with it, it's a pretty massive, pretty expansive fantasy series. It's my favorite fantasy series. It's one that a ton of people really, really love. Uh, Wade has put together a discord server for it. We're just trying to gather some people together who want to either read or reread this big, awesome, amazing series and, you know, discuss and share how we feel about it. So if that sounds interesting to you, if you're a fantasy enthusiast, if you've been wanting to check out Steven Erickson's writing. Definitely give that a look. We've shared a few things from it on Twitter, um, so you can go through and let us know, or let Wade know, and we'll uh, we'll get you all set up.
0: Nice, yeah that that sounds really cool. It's it's cool to have those those groups, especially with a really diverse group of people and everything.
1: How about you what What have you been doing media wise?
0: Well, my big thing I finally got caught up on what we do in the shadows. Season four of that just started. I think two or three weeks ago. I think I'm two episodes into season four now. So I think I may have one more, but I'm basically caught up. It's excellent. It's wonderful. It's dark. It's funny. Um, I don't know. It's fun seeing the characters kind of develop and get a little deeper as the series goes on. Yeah, it's really good. Plus, there is the Colin Robinson baby. And it's the creepiest (laughs) thing that's ever been in that show.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we haven't watched any of the new uh, season yet. But um, we're looking forward to checking it out.
0: It's a good time. I highly recommend it. So, now that we have all that done, I think it's time to talk about Shipwreck.
1: Yeah, let's get to it.
0: Let's get down to business. I was expecting a Mulan reference there. I know. You didn't want to give it? Today, we are going to be talking about the San Rafael. Have you heard of the San Rafael?
1: Um, no.
0: No. What if I told you you've been very close to the San Rafael and didn't know it?
1: I've been a few places. I would believe that.
0: <laughs> so let's go ahead and talk about her. The San Rafael entered service in 1878. She's actually owned by the North Pacific Coast Railroad. So obviously, you see Railroad's getting in on some of that sweet, sweet ferry action. Her construction was unique, along with her sister ship, the Sausalito. They were actually assembled in San Francisco from parts that were pre-made and shipped via rail and ship from Brooklyn, New York. Hmm. So she's actually like sent in pieces to California to be assembled.
1: I know we've talked about that a few a few times.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That was also mentioned in that steamboat presentation from the Maritime Museum of British Columbia, how mm-hmm. uh, that would be done and sort of, you know, ship it in pieces and then put it together on site and boom, you've got a steamboat. Mm
0: hmm. So, the Sausalito would actually be lost to a fire in 1884 at San Quentin Wharf, and a replacement vessel would be built by the same name, although she would differ in specifications. However, she's going to be important to remember. She plays a very important role, so she'll be important later. Do you know, is that San Quentin Wharf
1: at all related to the current location of the prison?
0: Yeah, it's the same place. Like, San Quentin's not very big. Like, right on the water there okay. i've been there actually i've been right to the prison nice not in the prison but <laughs> to it <laughs> um so her dimensions: she's 220 feet long and she has a beam of 32 feet so you know she's not the biggest vessel that we've talked about but you know substantial she's not she's not tiny especially for what she's doing she's just a, a ferry going across the bay so she is a sidewheel steamboat, fairly common design overall. We've talked about some of these. I think you probably know a little bit more about these at this point than I do. But she's, you know, well-regarded. She's even referred to as the prettiest boat that ever cleft the waters of San Francisco Bay by the San Francisco Call newspaper. Hmm. So, you know, well-regarded. And yeah, it's interesting how, like, we've talked about this before, like, how proud people are of these vessels, like, at mm-hmm. this time. Like, it's seen as, like, cutting-edge technology and... You know, like, I think there is like a little bit of like community pride that like, look at this awesome steamboat that we have as we civilize the West.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, especially at that time where there's probably fewer things to catch the eye. So, yeah, someone coming to San Francisco from from the east today, it probably seems like a pretty minor detail. But, yeah, like, oh, they have such nice, beautiful ferries in San Francisco Mm -hmm. Um, is probably a, a, you know, a big, uh, like you said, a point of pride for the community.
0: Right. So ferries have a long history in the area, actually. So given like the unique terrain of the Bay Area and the rapid population growth, ferries have been operating in the Bay since 1826. Uh, One of the earliest routes is between San Francisco and Oakland, as those cities both began to experience massive growth due to the westward expansion that was going on. And Captain Thomas Gray was one of the earliest (laughs) operators. Uh, He used a stern wheel river packet named the General Sutter and a small iron steamer named Kangaroo.
1: Yes. Um, (laughs) Presumably not the English poet Thomas Gray.
0: I would believe not.
1: (laughs) Especially because I think he'd been dead for like a century at this point.
0: Yeah. If it's him, then uh, we have issues. More vessels would be added in the coming years to enhance service. And, you know, it becomes clear that vessels are playing a really important role in trade and travel in the area. In 1853, Charles Minturn forms the Contra Costa Steam Navigation Company, and he builds a ferry called the Clinton, one of the first that's purposely built for operations in the bay. Hmm. Minturn would go on to add additional vessels through construction and also through the acquisition of the San Antonio Steam Navigation Company before ultimately being bought out by the San Francisco and Oakland Railroad in 1865. So you can see it's, you know, railroads have been having a pretty heavy influence on these ferry routes for a long time.
1: It's funny, I don't, I'm not someone who considers myself really interested in like corporate histories, or like Mm -hmm. business history, whatever. But whenever we get to these stories where it's like this company and this company competing, and then they both get swallowed up by this company. I don't know, there's something weirdly exciting about it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, it is interesting tracing the lineage of some of these places and everything. Um, so the ferry networks would continue to grow and expand uh, you know, with the growth in that region and everything. In 1909, the ferry Melrose was launched, and it actually has an unobstructed lower deck that was specifically designed for cars. Hmm. So you're beginning to see the integration of the automobile into the ferries and everything.
1: Yeah, that's now. that's funny to think that as early as 1909 1909- – rolling out, you know, infrastructure and, you know, these ferries specifically designed with cars in mind, kind of how early the automobile starts sort of getting its claws into the structure of the United States.
0: It's really, you know, killing mass transit is one of those uh, traditions unlike any other in America. We've been working (laughs) at it for a long time.
1: I was just listening to an episode of This Machine Kills with Paris marks on it. So they were talking a lot about the history of the automobile in the United States. So I've got that on the brain recently.
0: <laughs> so the Bay Bridge and the Golden Gate Bridge, yeah, speaking of automobiles, had a <laughs> detrimental effect on these ferries. You know, obviously, if I can just, if I'm trying to go from San Francisco to Sausalito and I can just take the Golden Gate Bridge to get there, that's a lot easier than driving my car down to the wharf, loading up on a ferry, and then waiting for everybody else to load. Like, mm-hmm. who's not going to do that if it's that's the easier option? right. You know, I just think that's interesting, but it it does have an effect on the ferries. By 1958, there's actually no commuter ferries in the Bay Area, and that service wouldn't resume until 1964. Uh, the ferries were still operating. However, they mostly catered towards tourists. So it was more about like getting out in the Bay or going to Angel Island or something like that. It wasn't built with commuters in mind.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So today there are multiple ferry lines around the Bay Area. There's the Golden Gate Ferry, which is a division of the Golden Gate Bridge, Highway, and Transport District. They operate between the Ferry Building in San Francisco and Sausalito, Tiburon, and Larkspar in Marin County. Those are kind of some of the areas we'll be talking about today, actually. So this ferry kind of goes in the same places that our story happens in. Hmm. Another one of the ferries is the San Francisco Bay Ferry, and it's owned by the Water Emergency transit authority whose name would be weta wet uh Uh, they operate between alameda and jack london square in oakland and they go to the ferry building in san francisco next up would be the alcatraz cruises which operates with oversight from the national park service they run from pier 33 to alcatraz island and this is actually the ferry that we have taken Mm -hmm. before yep i remember that I've taken it twice. I've, I've been to Alcatraz twice, and, and I've been around the bay and everything a couple times. But uh, it's it's cool, right? Like, that's a cool ferry. Like, you you get to see how beautiful everything is, and Alcatraz looks so close to the mainland, but, like, it just isn't.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Like, it, it doesn't look far away, but then, like, you get on the boat, and you're going over, and you're like, it's just, it feels like you've been on the boat for 20 minutes, and you don't feel any closer.
1: Yeah, like, it might actually be hard to swim this. Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh finally there is the blue and gold fleet they operate from pier 41 in san francisco and they go to angel island which if i'm in the bay area again anytime soon i definitely want to check out i've heard that angel island is very interesting
1: is angel island like inhabited permanently or is it more of like a nature place
0: um i think it's nature but it's also history uh stuff with like it's kind of the ellis island of the west so there's a lot of you know chinese and Asian immigration stuff there as well. So also something that would be super interesting to check out. But the point of all this is, as you can tell, fairies have played a really big role in the Bay Area. You know, that's it's part of life in the Bay Area um, for so many people. Let's move on to the evening of November 30th, 1901. The San Rafael is making final preparations to depart her slip in San Francisco, and she's bound for Sausalito across the San Francisco Bay. If you're not familiar with the geography of the Bay Area, maybe pull up a map. It'll make a little more sense. Basically, she's traveling kind of like the same thing that the Golden Gate Bridge would help you get to is what she's doing. So she's going from the south up to the north.
1: Okay. Uh, I'm looking at a map right now. I like have a vague memory of how this area is laid out. (laughs)
0: I absolutely love the Bay Area. It's one of my favorite places that I've been. It's beautiful. So this ferry is crowded with families returning home after spending the day in San Francisco. This is a Saturday. So it's, you know, it's not full of men traveling back and forth from work. It's full of families. Mm -hmm. As so many of our stories start out. (laughs) Right. On this particular evening, the fog that, you know, San Francisco is so famous for, it's crept down from the hills and it's enveloped the entire bay. So, after a slight delay due to that fog, the ferry moves out of her slip and disappears into the evening fog. The following is a quote from the captain of the San Rafael, a man by the name of John McKenzie. After turning around, I shaped my course for Alcatraz. The fog was the thickest I've seen on the bay for many years. I ran along on a slow bell and passed a tug to the port shortly after leaving my slip. After steaming along a few minutes, I picked up the bell off the end of Lombard Street. It was then about 630 o'clock or thereabouts. As soon as I got bearings from the bell, I shaped my usable course for Alcatraz. Running along under slow bell, my lookout, C.H. Johnson, the second mate, was peering into the dense fog at the bow. And my mate, Charles Johnson, was with me in the pilot house. So as we can see, like he's saying this is some of the thickest fog he's ever seen. Uh, less than optimal conditions. I'm assuming this man has seen some fog.
1: This is also in the days before more surnames were invented.
0: Yeah. Um, you don't have any options here. If, like, you got some Irish options and then you got Johnson, Smith, Jones. Yeah. You're pretty limited. Passengers on board, you know, they're not really thinking about that. There's some talk of the fog, but, you know, most people. I would imagine, are just going about their day, right? They're playing cards, they're having drinks, it's dinner time, a lot of people are eating after they've had fun all day, shopping and, you know, seeing the sights in San Francisco. However, there were some on board that, uh, you know, they felt it wasn't a typical crossing. Survivors would later report that there were discussions amongst passengers about the fog and the danger of collision. Uh, One of the people we'll be talking about a little bit is a passenger by the name of TJ Lennon. He was in the ship's restaurant and he would later recall after the accident.
1: I ordered a steak and became very nervous in the restaurant because Jim McHugh of Corte Madera and several young men near him said this was just the night for a collision.
0: Uh, So then, Captain McKenzie, you know, back to him. He proceeds slowly due to the fog, obviously giving it the caution that it deserves, but there's something else weighing on his mind. And that's the knowledge that the company's other vessel, the new Sausalito 2.0, was heading in the opposite direction and the vessels (laughs) would have to pass each other at some point on the journey. Both captains would have been aware of this as they both knew the timetables that both vessels kept. Captain McKenzie would later explain that the San Rafael gave off fog signals for the entirety of her voyage from the time she had left her slip. The signals consisted of repeated blasts of the whistle. As the two vessels approached, they were both moving at a slow speed and giving regular blasts of their fog horns. This was noticed by passengers who were familiar with these ferries. Um, It's notable because it was not normal. You know, they're, they're wondering, like, wow, they sure are signaling an awful lot. That's not how this normally goes. On board the Sausalito, passenger Ed Thomas stated, I first heard Captain McKenzie's whistle and his danger signal, which was answered immediately by the Sausalito. Captain Tribble tried hard to slow his ship, but it was too late. The fog was so thick you could scarcely see the lookout on the boat, let alone the San Rafael in front of us. It was at this point that both vessels knew they were right on top of each other, but still couldn't see each other. The San Rafael stopped and then reversed her engines, while the Sausalito reversed its engines just as the San Rafael was coming broadside into her path. For a few fleeting seconds, the outline of the vessels became visible to each other, but by this point, it was too late to avoid collision. Hmm. The Sausalito's bow struck the starboard side of the San Rafael at a nearly 90-degree angle, slicing directly into her. Uh, Returning to our friend T.J. Lennon, the passenger in the restaurant, he's quoted as saying,
1: I had just finished my steak when the crash came. The Sausalito actually forced her bow right into the restaurant where we were seated. I was pinioned down for a few moments, but eventually was able to release myself. Jim McHugh, however, was in bad shape. He had one of his ears nearly cut off and one of his arms broken. I ran out of the restaurant and secured a life preserver. I tried to fasten it around me, but it was too tight. I ran upstairs and found my sister-in-law and gave her my life preserver. Mr. Hines of San Rafael assisted me to save her. I said I would lower the young lady into the boat. He said that there was not time and she must jump. So I threw her down into the boat, which was shoved away from the side of the San Rafael.
0: Just picking up your sister-in-law and chucking her into a lifeboat.
1: (laughs) That's how he did it, see?
0: (laughs) So the Sausalito, when it makes impact, smashes directly through the paddle box and drives its bow directly into the dining room, which is the account that we just heard. Passengers eating at the coffee counter and seated are knocked over and they're sprayed by a shower of splintering lumber. Part of the paddle wheel is thrown across the room and, you know, the waiter and cook that are working in the kitchen are thrown to the ground. They're covered with kitchen debris, including boiling water and knives. Hmm. Uh, So just an all around bad situation. Just thinking about
1: like how if you look at these old sea boats, how big the paddle wheel is compared to the boat. And yeah, like pieces of that are flying through the boat like that is going to hurt or kill
0: someone. Exactly. And like I think those paddle boxes things like when you see it on a ship, it doesn't seem that big necessarily because it's like to scale with a ship. Mm -hmm. But flying across a dining room like. That's so dangerous. yeah I mean
1: thinking thinking about even one of those even one of the paddles, like that's pretty big, that's a pretty heavy piece of solid wood is it wood in this case, I would um, assume because I know some of them had metal
0: either way, it's a bad day
1: that's really scary,
0: so Captain McKinsey would later testify that he did not think the collision was fatal when it first occurred, saying it was quite a crash, but at the time, I did not think it was serious enough to sink her. Uh, The two ships would continue to bump and push into each other while they're being carried by the swells in the bay. So, you know, it's a lot of just kind of bumping and grinding going on right now, Mm -hmm. but they're still kind of together. T.J. Lennon would later describe a terrifying scene as the following.
1: The next thing that I knew was that the bow of the Sausalito was jamming against us. I heard a scream and I saw that a young man was wedged in against the bow of the Sausalito. At the same time, a young lady screamed and said that her arm was broken. I thought that I was getting too warm. Knowing that the San Rafael was sinking, I jumped overboard.
0: I really love that description of him being like, you know, I kind of looked around and realized I'm getting out of here. <laughs> like, good for you, TJ. Good for you. Lennon would go on to swim for um, from lifeboat to lifeboat for the next half an hour, although he was unable to get in because he was afraid he would overturn them. Eventually, he's pulled into one of these lifeboats by Mr. Haynes of the San Rafael.
1: Honestly, like really cool thinking there from, from Lennon to have the mental wherewithal to make sure he's not going to overturn one of these lifeboats.
0: Yeah. I would imagine like if you're like fairly comfortable in the water and like Mm -hmm. know that you can cling onto a lifeboat and not actually have to swim. Like as long as you stay calm in that situation, Mm -hmm. like you're going to be okay. Yeah. Like good job on him for not panicking and, you know, overturning a lifeboat and dumping 20 people into the water. Mm Mm-hmm. So we kind of got a glimpse of this from the linen quote that we just had, but on board the San Rafael, there's confusion and in some instances, outright panic as passengers tried to figure out what was going on. By far the most chaotic area is the restaurant, which, as we've stated, took a brunt of the collision. Some of the most critically injured included a waiter by the name of George Crandall. He was hit in the chest by a beam. Mm. And James McHugh, who we've referenced previously, he was tossed across the room and was now suffering from a broken arm and a nearly severed ear. James McHugh would later say of his ordeal.
1: I was sitting at the head of the table at the ladies department of the restaurant. There were three other passengers at the table. When the crash came, I was sent spinning across the place. I found myself in a corner with my arm broken, and my ear hanging down to the side of my face. I found everything in confusion and everybody struggling to get inside of life preservers. I pulled off my coat and threw it away. There was $400 in greenbacks in the breast pocket, which I meant to transfer to my pantaloons, but forgotten the rush for a jumping off place. I've been through some pretty tough experiences in Alaska, but never anything like this.
0: I wanted to include this quote for a couple of reasons. First off, just seeing how chaotic it is, but also kind of how coolly he describes having his ear almost ripped off. Mm -hmm. Like it just just like it's another thing that happens. People were built Uh, different. They were built different back then. The $400 in greenbacks is just awesome. I, I love that phrase being used like unironically. That's a lot of money, isn't it? Yeah. yeah like that, $400 in 1901. That That is a lot of 1901 money. Um, and then finally, I also love that he references that uh, it's not always worse in Alaska. <laughs> he is the opposite of the captain of the Alfaro. He says this has nothing on Alaska.
1: Yeah, take that.
0: <laughs> yeah, this man had his ear ripped off. <laughs> So, a human crush is narrowly avoided, and passengers were able to rush out of the restaurant and get a hold of life preservers. Um, it's at this point that the Sausalito pulls away from the San Rafael, and they come along broadside. So, the vessels are then lashed together by a few lines, which prevents them from drifting apart. Uh, this action would prove pivotal in limiting the loss of life in this incident. There's also some reports that a Plank was placed between the vessels, and this would allow passengers to literally walk off of the sinking San Rafael. However, as she sank lower, that angle, you know, that becomes worse and worse. So a second means of escape was created when windows of the restaurant were broken out by passengers and crew, and people actually began to leap across the gap and onto the sausalito
1: That sounds more dangerous.
0: Yeah, it definitely sounds more dangerous, but I imagine like you get more brave as that thing gets like mm-hmm. lower and lower in the water. <laughs> So the stricken vessel listed to starboard, and you know she begins to sink lower and lower. And then when she finally goes down, her forward mass nearly smashes one of the lifeboats that's sitting alongside the Sausalito. Hmm. Captain John McKenzie would later testify, I can say that as quickly as the thing could be done, we had the two boats lashed together to facilitate the transferring of passengers from the sinking San Rafael to the Sausalito. You must consider... That intense excitement prevailing among the passengers, while panic that prevailed in the main cabin where women and children were running in circles, screaming frantic, and it made it difficult for the steamers officers to carry out any orderly plans. So, basically, he's saying, like, women be crazy. Good thing all those men were there to take charge, which... I'm
1: surprised that the word hysteria didn't come up
0: (laughs) right yeah these hysterical women yeah (laughs) but it is interesting like it it (laughs) does sound like overall that it was handled well by the crew uh Mm -hmm. it sounds like the right people took charge and got things organized
1: well maybe if men weren't in charge of everything they wouldn't have run into each other in the first place
0: (laughs) so he would go on to state that it was his belief when he left the vessel that there was not a living soul aboard He truly believes that everyone is off of the vessel and, you know, he's not doing a Costa Concordia or Mm -hmm. an Oceano. So he's not trying to get off that thing until his job is done. So a majority of the evacuees were able to stay dry and literally walk or jump aboard the Sausalito. That's kind of cool. You don't see that in a lot of these incidences, and that'll kind of be reflected in the, you know, casualty totals when we talk about that.
1: We saw a little bit of that with the neuronic Mm-hmm. um especially the early moments of that when people start to realize it's on fire but the way that it's moored and the way it's close to other ships they're able to literally just walk to safety um either to another ship or to to the
0: dock so you know this would become more difficult as the San Rafael settled just before sinking those remaining on board were forced onto the ship's roof where many fell or jumped into the cold waters of the bay um it's estimated that there's between 40 and 60 people in the water uh, lifeboats from both vessels were launched and attempted to rescue those in the water mm. during this operation. However, one of the lifeboats was capsized, forcing the displaced occupants to cling to the overturned boat for about 30 minutes until they were rescued. So, mm. you know, that's kind of the thing that Lennon was worried about, you know, is overturning that boat and everything and that does happen in one instance that a boat is overturned. And, you know, that's how bad things happen in these situations. Like you don't want 20 people in the water if you can avoid it, obviously.
1: And this is November, right?
0: Yeah, so it's it's not warm, yeah. that water is cold and the currents are swift. So
1: and I think that's something to point out also is like obviously, you know, we talk about a lot of cold water stories here with Lake Superior and you know even up into like Alaska or um the Sea of Okhotsk. But also for anyone who's like I don't know, never been to San Francisco, if you're thinking of California and you're thinking of Los Angeles, it's a very different climate. Like it can get Very, very cold on the waterfront in San Mm -hmm. Francisco.
0: It is very damp cold. So after collecting the last of the lifeboats, the fog actually begins to lift slightly. And a light is noticed approaching the Sausalito from the south. Um, At that moment, a tug by the name of Sea King becomes visible through the fog. And Captain Tribble of the Sausalito yells out, where are we? The Sea King would respond, off the Presidio light, heading out to sea. So again, if you have your maps pulled open, if you look where Presidio is compared to Alcatraz, you'll see that you're moving out towards the area that's actually spanned by the Golden Gate Bridge. So in all of this rescue operation and drifting that had gone on, they've actually been pushed all the way from right off of Alcatraz, basically to the Golden Gate, which after you're through the Golden Gate, you're actually (laughs) in the Pacific Ocean. So you can see like, you know, if you've got a lot of people in the water, you don't want to be swept out to sea. That's bad, but it's definitely something that uh, the Bay is known for are those Mm -hmm. swift currents and everything. Uh, So an excerpt from the San Francisco Chronicle praised the action of both vessels crews in the aftermath of this at the height of the panic, the nerve of the officers and the coolness of some passengers came to the rescue. The frightened women were calmed and the men from both boats began to pass them over the rails to the opposite deck. The rush at the doors blocked all entrances, and the men threw themselves against windows and frames, breaking them and letting out the imprisoned women and children. A score of men working like heroes dragged them over the rails into safety. The article would go on to say of Captain McKenzie that Captain McKenzie, standing by his duty to the last, stayed with his boat until the moment she sank. He saw most, if not all, of her human freight carried to safety and then (laughs) jumped for his life. The steamer had been about 20 minutes in sinking in the last 10, her lights had been out and she finished her career in total darkness, which may have hidden some who would otherwise have been discovered and taken off as it is. No one can say last night for certainty, whether the dead is three or 30. Did you have any thoughts on any of those excerpts?
1: I have thoughts about human freight.
0: <laughs> it's a- and again, here we are with, like, the, the imprisoned women and children and the hysterical <laughs> women. It's, it's just very interesting with the parts that, like, apparently no men were afraid. Like There were no cowardly men on this vessel. Right. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. It's very interesting of its time. Initial reports of those lost in the accident uh, were variable due to the lack of information. First report to reach San Francisco reported that 20 had drowned. However, later in the evening, that numbers increased to 100. Many passengers would give accounts of seeing dozens of people in the water or being trapped in the sinking vessel. And many also stated they saw people swept out towards the Golden Gate and ultimately out to sea. It would not really become apparent until the next day when these people returned home, who was still missing. Basically, everyone had to get home, and they had to figure out well who, who didn't make it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the morning after the sinking, the fog had grown lighter and multiple vessels made a search of the bay, looking for bodies or survivors. They were able to find two lifeboats drifting. One was off of Point Bonita, and one was off Union Street Wharf. Uh, The lifeboat off of Union Street Wharf contained a pair of women's gloves, two bonnets, and a pair of stockings, but nothing else. The San Francisco Call would run an article discussing the anxiety and angst that was felt across Marin County, After the San Rafael's loss. And keep in mind, Marin County is the county that is across the bay. It's on the other side of the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco. So that's right. You know, these people were from Sausalito. I know it's weird because one of the vessels is named Sausalito. And we keep talking about the town of Mm -hmm. Sausalito. But most of the people who were on the San Rafael were from Marin County in the Sausalito area. Mm -hmm. Throughout Marin County yesterday, there was a feeling of unrest. The telegraph and telephone operators had more than their share of work. From one end of the county to the other, inquiries were made all day long. Information that was sought from police officers, the morgue, and private citizens. To all, the small loss of life is looked upon as a miracle. Uh, in total, there are six official deaths as a result of this sinking, and they are as follows Cyrus A. Walker of Ross Station, age five. George Treadway of Sausalito, age 55. William G. Crandall, that is the man who was struck by the beam, of Sausalito, age 55, Alexander Hall of Sacramento County, age 40, and a Josephine Smith of San Rafael, who's only listed as missing. Maybe those were her gloves. You may have realized I've only listed five names. There is a sixth victim. That is Dick the Freight Horse. (laughs) (laughs)
1: can i change my twitter handle to that
0: (laughs) uh dick the freight horse did not make it and carrying on the fine tradition of horses in this podcast i don't know i think one horse made like a three mile swim that one time i can't remember was that the Edmela, i think that the horse swam or is that apocryphal
1: well i think we kind of kind of putting it in the same context as we would put with the human survivors of these things like typically you have to be in pretty good shape to survive a shipwreck you know if you don't have a bunch of rescue equipment so we talked about in the Admella. i believe that horse's name was the barber right that was a race horse that's probably you know peak performance you can get for a horse dick the freight horse i he sounds like he'd be really heavy i'm guessing
0: uh probably has like a you know horse dad bod you know he's just working trying to pay for the kids
1: there's muscle but it's under
0: it's under some it's under
1: some layers
0: yeah, Dick just wants to have a couple bush lights when he gets off work every day. Well, that's sad. Dick the Freight Horse, victim of this tragedy. The damage to the Sausalito proved minimal, all things considered. Her bow woodwork was smashed and her rudder was destroyed. However, as she was a purpose-built ferry, she was actually built with a rudder on each end of the vessel. So she could operate without having to turn around. Oh. Uh, this meant she was able to resume service the day after the sinking. Because it's 1901 and there's no rules.
1: What rules, you sons of bitches? Give her, like, a break.
0: (laughs) Maybe, like, check her out and make sure she's good to go.
1: (laughs) Yeah, like, Uh, I just want... Who's operating her? Like, just the same crew? Probably. (laughs) Like...
0: Uh, The exact location of the sinking was hotly debated in the community. And on December 14th, 1901, divers found the vessel in 102 feet of water and a very strong current. They reported that the vessel was resting on her side with her bow pointing up the bay. Divers then placed cables around the vessel, and she was drugged by two tugs to a depth of 96 feet. However, a few days later, the owners chose to abandon the vessel rather than attempt salvage.
1: I don't even want to know what kind of diving equipment they're working with here
0: absolutely not it would have to be terrifying
1: terrifying like i'm (laughs) guessing it's probably not one of those like super old timey diving suits like i i feel like that's maybe a little bit older than this but still it can't be something that would make me feel confident
0: of using. there has to be far too much iron and brass involved probably like for me
1: literally just a hose leading to the surface (laughs) that you can breathe through
0: So there is eventually a hearing to establish who's at fault, and that hearing actually begins really quickly. It begins December 6, 1901. It's Mm -hmm. amazing how quickly these things moved back in the day.
1: Yeah, we've we've covered that on a few things where, you know, you've got some things where the next day you've got witnesses giving testimony of a, a wreck that happened.
0: So both captains gave their accounts of the events leading up to the accident, and both are questioned about the sequence and type of signals given while navigating that night. In particular, the focus is on what fog signals were given prior to the collision. Uh, the hearing did not take very long to release the results. They blamed both Captains Tribble and McKenzie equally. The primary reason was that they both gave passing signals before they knew they were clear. And as a result of this, Captain McKenzie's license is revoked, although it was already due to expire on January 2nd, 1902. Ah. Uh, He would obtain a new license in January of 1902, and he would actually captain the Sausalito during her daytime runs. Hmm. Uh, Captain Tribble's license was suspended for 30 days, and then he was reinstated. So I kind of feel like it's a kind of a fair verdict here. I mean, I don't think anyone's truly at fault. It sounds like both of them are doing what they're supposed to do. But, I mean, you got to blame someone, I guess. And, you know, they weren't given overly harsh, you know, sentences, I don't think.
1: That is the trouble with triples. <laughs> yeah. I mean, here. Yeah, I think kind of like you said, you've got, you've got to do something because here you've got to kind of either say that they're both at fault or no one's at fault. And exactly. I think finding no one at fault for an accident that sinks a ferry and kills
0: five people in Dick,
1: five people and Dick, the freight horse, like someone has to be at fault for it. Someone did something. Yeah, uh, so yeah I feel like if you're going to do that, have them at least sort of cancel out, you know, offsetting penalties,
0: replay the down
1: we'll see who
0: cancels who. Yeah, I think it's sort of one of those things where if it was if the conditions were truly that bad then a captain has a duty to say that we can't sail. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't safely do this. It's it's like when they like your flight gets delayed and you're pissed off about it, but you know you realize like hey, we can't say, like we can't fly directly into like a derecho. So, for his bravery and leadership, Captain McKenzie is actually honored by a testimonial signed by 650 people. And it's engraved into a plaque that's presented to him. Uh, the beginning of this testimonial reads to Captain John Taylor McKenzie, master mariner, San Francisco harbor. We who have been passengers for many years on the steamer San Rafael while under your command have an ample opportunity of recognizing your skill, courage and caution as a navigator, your ability as a commander and your courtesy as a gentleman. So he's pretty well regarded by the people of San Francisco for all of this. Um, I think he's remembered as a guy like, you know, he took his job seriously. When something bad happened, he took the proper steps. He made sure people got off and he Mm -hmm. did that time honored thing of being the last man on the vessel.
1: It connects back to what you were talking about at the beginning, this being kind of kind of a source of pride for the community, the ferry. And then here, of course, you know, by sort of by connection. The, if the ferry's master is behaving this way, it reflects well on the community. Like this is the kind of people that we produce
0: here. Right, and I think you have to remember too, like San Francisco isn't as big as it is now, mm-hmm. and a lot of the same people are taking these ferries. Like they know the captain of these vessels. Like you know, it's it's a guy you say hi to when you're on there, or if you see him, you know, getting breakfast in the morning, or you know, in in a you know, bar having a drink, like you, you might buy him a drink. Cause it's someone that you interact with on a day, like a you know, daily or weekly basis. So mm-hmm. he's known to the community. It's a little different than the ferries you take now, where it's just kind of a nameless, faceless person that you don't interact with.
1: I guess it would be more akin to like a bus driver. If you're taking the bus, you know,
0: yeah, the same bus every week. day.
1: If you've got the same bus route, probably the same bus driver.
0: Yeah. Um, so James McHugh, who we talked about earlier, sued the Northwest Pacific railroad And after three years, the court awarded him $1,500. However, this was later increased to $5,000 in a 1905 appeal. Additionally, the family of Alexander Hall also sued and was initially awarded $5,000. But this was later increased to $7,500 on appeal. So it's interesting to see that there is some like legal repercussions here. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think that's something we see all the time in these incidences.
1: So McHugh lost $400 <laughs> and then later gets $5,000 after the yes. appeal.
0: So, so uh, wor- worth it? Playing the long game. I guess that's maybe, is that what an ear costs?
1: Probably. I mean, I don't know if how ears were valued in the early 20th century.
0: Probably not much.
1: But yeah, I mean, I don't know. Having $5,000 adjusted for wh- whatever that is now, that sounds pretty good. I'd,
0: I mean, I would just, I'd take $5,000. I'd sacrifice
1: an ear probably for that. Now we're getting into like Cronenberg territory here, but yeah, that that's sounds like it worked out. Okay. For James McHugh. Um
0: uh, it says $1 in 1901 is worth 3486 today. So yeah, $5,000 would be all right. Yeah. One final note on this one, a little, a little nugget of interesting stuff this incident is said to have inspired Jack London for portions of his novel Seawolf, uh, especially like the beginning chapters. I've not read the book, so I'm not familiar with what goes on. But uh, I guess he was very aware of this incident and may have drawn some inspiration from it, actually. I've never read any Jack London. I was actually about to ask you that. Have you, I didn't know if you had. It's never been something that I've really been interested in reading, but I don't know. Like I'm, I'm not opposed to the idea of, of reading some of it.
1: Yeah, I don't know. It just never has struck me as something I'd want to read. But then again, neither did like John Steinbeck. And I love his writing. Right. So, yeah, maybe I should give Jack London a try.
0: So yeah, that is the story of the San Rafael. It's interesting, right? Like this, There's a sunken passenger ferry like just off of Alcatraz Island. I've been to Alcatraz twice. I had no idea that was there until mm-hmm. I researched this story. I don't know. I just like talking about the Bay Area. I love it. I think it's beautiful there. It has such a unique, like, geography to it, and there's just so many cool things. And the way that the the hills and the mountains and the, the forests interact with the ocean, it's great. It's, it's a beautiful place. It's one of my favorite places. So, I don't know. I had, I had a fun time doing this one and, and researching it and, and learning a little bit more about the that area and the history.
1: Yeah, that's cool. I've only been out there twice,
0: I think you've been twice. I've been three times to San Francisco, so I think you've been twice.
1: Yeah, it's a cool place. Anyone ever has a chance to go and visit Alcatraz, definitely do it.
0: Yep. All of that. It's great. The Muir woods and all that stuff, you know, up north in Marin County, like that stuff's amazing. It's it's beautiful. Highly recommended.
1: You can destroy your teeth on some sourdough bread. I love, I,
0: I love sourdough bread though. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, that's our uh, that's our story for this week. I hope everybody enjoyed it. And um, yeah, have a great week, everybody.
1: Thanks for listening to another episode of Beyond the Breakers. We love hearing from listeners. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, there's a couple of ways you can do that. We're on Twitter at beyond underscore breakers. We're on Instagram at beyond the breakers podcast. Our email is beyond the breakers pod at gmail.com. And we do also have a Patreon set up for the show. That's patreon.com slash beyond the breakers. Money from the Patreon just goes back into making the show, covers things like web hosting fees, research materials, the occasional hardware upgrade to keep the show sounding as good as possible. We appreciate all of the support in any way it comes. The simplest way to support the show is just to listen and share it with your friends. Other ways to support the show include leaving ratings and reviews, ratings and reviews really help us. They help the show stay visible. They help more people find the show and they make us feel good. So any of those ways you can support the show is greatly appreciated until next time. Take care.